As we get started, let me pray for us as we begin to turn our minds' attention to God's Word. Father, help us uh, as we are your people who uh, need to be transformed, Lord, as we, as we believe, as we come near, as we see your beauty. Uh, we pray that we would be transformed, not just once. Uh, but continually transformed more and more into your image. Help us, Lord, to hear your word, one of the primary agents that you use to transform us. Help us this morning to hear your word, that we might be encouraged, and at the end, that we might be made new by your power. So, Father, give, uh, give grace through your spirit, through the preaching uh, of the word and the hearing of your word, and for all of us, the obeying of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a man who was uh, concerned that his wife was losing her hearing devised... I know that sounds really silly, and that's not even possible, but just follow me for a moment, right? Okay, so a man is worried that his wife is uh, worried... Uh, a man is worried that his wife is, is losing her hearing. And so he devised, devises a test to figure out how, how hard of hearing she has become. So he, he's standing on the other side of the living room as she's in the kitchen, and he says, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. So, so he walks halfway through the living room and says, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. Uh, he, he comes to the doorway, the opening of the kitchen, and says, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. And with a little bit of exasperation, he then walks up right behind her and says, Honey, what's for dinner? And she turns to him and says, For the fifth time, chicken! Now, I'm glad you laughed, <laughs> because I feel very sympathetic with that guy, being hard of hearing myself. Uh, but okay, so we can be deaf, we can be inattentive to what's really going on around us, we can fail to perceive reality, but the, the story really exemplifies the idea that often we think it's the other person's problem. Right? They can't hear. They're not being responsive. They've not understood. When all the while, the problem is actually with us. Now, I, I think uh, for the Christian, sometimes this is our problem. We, we're very quick to think, the problem is out there. The problem is with that person. The problem is with that government. The problem is this, with that, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, but today's passage, uh, James is speaking to people who call themselves believers, to Christians. And I think that the kind of person James is talking to is somebody who, well, James wouldn't say it, but we would say it this way. Uh, he's talking to somebody who has selective hearing. You, you know what that's like, right? Um, I, I, I can see a couple of faces in the congregation that I know you know what I'm talking about in terms of selective hearing, right? Selective hearing is that when your ears are actually listening, but your brain is filtering out the message, right? It's an inconvenient truth. It's a responsibility that you don't want to have. Hearing something like, did you take out the trash, doesn't register, right? Because it's selective hearing. There is no physical problem with the ears. It's a choice not to listen, not to respond, to filter out what is hard to hear. What does such selective inattention to God say about us? 
This morning, our passage in James focuses on what happens to us when we, and, and when I say us and we, what happens to a Christian, what happens to somebody who is claiming to follow Christ, what happens to the Christian when they live with selective spiritual hearing. Again, the problem is, the issue James, James is uh, addressing is not the problem of someone else, is not uh, you know, government's problem, it's not society's problem. James is helping us focus on something internal, helping the Christ follower, the person who has said, I do believe, to, to discover something about themselves. So this selective hearing is not in somebody else. This selective hearing is in us. So, this passage this morning invites some self-reflection. We must find out what kind of people we are in light of, not our own opinion or society's standards, but we must find out who we are in light of, in light of Scripture, in light of God's Word. Now, James is writing this letter. And, and James's overarching concern, I want to say it up front, James's overarching concern in this letter is the issue of wholeness. How to be whole. How to be complete. What does a fully functioning follower of Jesus Christ look like? That's what James's whole letter is about. Here in verses 22 to 25, James is focusing on half that equation. Half the equation of wholeness. James is focusing on the human response. Okay, but that's half the equation of what it means to be whole before God. Okay, but here James is focusing on the half of the equation that is the human response to hearing. How do we respond? Okay, so the structure of the sermon is going to go like this. There will be two main points. The first point is longer than the second point and then a conclusion. Alright, so the first point is we're going to consider the contrast that James gives us. James is giving a contrast between mere hearers versus hearing doers. All right? So that's the contrast, and we'll look at both of those in turn. A mere hearer versus a hearing doer, and that's, that's the first point. And the second point is, uh, rather than leading us in a mode of introspection, rather than leaving off with only ourselves, we, we actually need to return to the gift or the provision, something that James is very interested in, uh, the gift that makes us whole. Uh, and so the second point is going to be the gift that transforms. So first point is, what is the contrast between new hearers and hearing doers? And the second point is, we must remember the gift that transforms. Okay, but before we get to the passage itself, there are two background questions I want to ask. Two background questions are these. Who is James? Who is this person? And where does his letter fit in the New Testament? Uh, you may or may not have your Bible with you this morning. Uh, turn to James chapter 1 if you do have. I'll read some passages uh, that are not in the bulletin. Here, verse 1, chapter 1, uh, tells us something about James. Verse 1, chapter 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, notice uh, that here at the beginning of this letter, James does not tell us anything more about himself than his name uh, and that he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't tell us, in the rest of this letter, he doesn't tell us anything else about himself. This means that the James who wrote this letter must have been well-known enough by the early Christian church that they would have known him only by his name, James. Now, now this name, James, was a popular name in the first century, so, and, and there are several men named James in the New Testament. Uh, but the most famous of those Jameses in the New Testament is none other than James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And so, without any other identification, the James that is writing this letter is James, Jesus' brother. Somebody who grew up in the same house as Jesus. Yet, as we learn from the Gospels and the book of Acts, James did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. It was only after the resurrection that Jesus' brothers and sisters began to believe that Jesus was not just their brother, but was the Son of God. So it's James, the brother of Jesus, who's writing this letter. The second question, so where does James' letter fit in the New Testament? Well, the Gospels, the four Gospels, tell us about the life of Jesus. Uh, the Gospels record the beginnings of early Christianity. The next book is the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, it's kind of like the sequel. It's kind of like part two. It's, it's where we learn about how the early church began to grow, how it spread. In Acts, we learn that James, the Lord's brother, uh, was a leader and active in the church in the city of Jerusalem. And we furthermore learned that James moderated a very important church meeting where they were discussing church teaching and mission strategy. It, it appears in Acts 15. There in Acts 15, the church is considering the inclusion of non-Jewish people into the church, into the people of God. And James, the brother of the Lord, the author of this text, is there making important decisions about the mission of the church. And we learn at the end of Acts 15 that James writes a letter. He writes a letter to all the Gentile churches. Those are non-Jewish people. He writes a letter to all the Gentile churches saying to them, you can be a part of God's people. You don't have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, the letter that we're reading this morning must have been written very soon after James wrote that other letter to Gentile churches. This letter that we're reading this morning, James is writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to believers. Uh, but these believers, the people here in James, uh, in the book of James that we're reading this morning, the audience here, uh, unlike Gentiles, the audience that James is addressing is a group of people who have known about God all their lives. They have grown up with the Jewish traditions and the Jewish scriptures. This is a group of people who are now following Jesus, but they have known about God for a very long time. They're also a group of people who are in need of a reminder that faith, if it is to be called faith at all, needs to be accompanied by transformation. It's not enough just to know the right things. One must be transformed and do as well. And so that's the audience James is talking to. He's talking to a group of people very much like us. So, the contrast. Uh, look at verse 22. We'll read the passage uh, again, at least verse 22. James here says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, 
the, the first characteristic I want to draw attention to is the second part of this verse, where James is saying, look, I want you to be doers of the word. Um, I don't want you to be mere hearers. Because what happens to the mere hearer, the one who only listens and doesn't do? That person, James says, is self-deceived. Interesting that self-deception is what James puts his finger on here. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of an illustration from my own life. For several years, I taught a summer class in in Greek. I know that sounds very boring, but but for several summers in a row, I teach a class in Greek. We called it suicide Greek because it was really hard to learn over a summer. I called it baby Greek because just like a baby, it keeps you up all night, right? Because you're studying. Um, Every summer, without fail, I had students who had come to me who had already taken Greek, but they had forgotten it, and they wanted to audit the class. Or students who didn't you know, want to spend the money, but they wanted to learn, so they wanted to audit the class. Okay, and you know what auditing a class means. It means you just show up. As a faculty member, I think, great, I don't have to grade your quizzes. I don't have to grade your exams. Right? You just show up and listen, and I have no other responsibility towards you. I, I know that's awful, but that's how I thought. Uh, but every summer when these folks would come and want to audit the class, I would say to them, you are welcome to audit, but it will do you no good. And they would just like ignore me, right? And they'd show up for the first two weeks of class, and then they would no longer come after that. Why? Because you can't learn a language just by listening. You have to speak it. You have to write it. You have to memorize it. You have to say it to one another. You have to write out your paradigms. You have to learn vocabulary. Language is something you can't just passively take in. You must be an active participant in order to absorb it. I think James here is saying to us, right, we're not learning Greek, but I think James is saying to us, don't be a spiritual auditor. Don't audit church. Don't come and just listen, thinking perhaps that only knowing things or having the right content is, is all that you need. Doing is a part of knowing. Those two things can't be separated. John Calvin, uh, Reformed theologian, famously said that true wisdom consists of two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Here is where I think why James is push, putting his finger on this. If, if, uh, if we're only listening and we're not doing, we're not allowing what we're hearing to transform us and to change us, to, to turn into action, then we run the great risk of being self-deceived. We think we know something when we really don't know it. Back to those Greek students, there's nothing more dangerous than a half-baked Greek student because they will go around campus or they will stand up in a pulpit and they'll start saying things about Greek thinking they know when they only partially know and that can lead to hurting people or really misrepresenting what the text says, etc. I think the same thing happens in our Christian lives. When, when we become proud that we are Presbyterians or that we're Reformed or that we have the right kind of theology, we're evangelicals, or we, we have an us versus them mentality, well, at least I'm an evangelical and I don't believe X. Taking confidence or pride in what we know, especially when it has no transformative effect in our lives, can make us very dangerous. Remember the parable of Jesus. In 
Matthew 21. He said this, What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Jesus is putting his finger on this very same thing that James is putting his finger on. It's not enough just to say, I know, or I've heard. Um, just like the Greek student, it's not enough to say, I, I, I know some things about the language. It, it must be absorbed. It must be absorbed to the point that there's transformation, that actions come out of our knowledge. The idea is that doing um, is necessary for understanding. Um, I've been teaching a couple of members of my family to drive, uh, and it's very clear that knowing about driving and driving a car are very different things and can have disastrous consequences if there's all kinds of ill-suited confidence from just knowing and then getting in a car and driving fast. Knowing and doing are interrelated. And James is saying if we are inattentive to knowing and doing God, being connected, then we run the great risk of self-deception. In addition to self-deception, the mere hearer is also a forgetful looker. Look at verses 23 and 24. James continues, he says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 23, 4. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Um, now, that's a strange image, right? I mean, who forgets what they look like after they uh, look into the mirror? Uh, this is our first hint that James is using the, uh, the image of looking into a mirror as a metaphor for self-examination. It's, it's not just that you're looking in the mirror and combing your hair and brushing your teeth in kind of a mundane way. This is a metaphor to describe a moment of self-knowledge, of self-reflection. Back to what Calvin was saying, right? If we really are going to know God, God, that means we have to know something about ourselves as well. And here James is saying, um, the person who only hears is not a very attentive looker. So someone who's not very attentive in looking and understanding themselves. So this image uh, is, is an opportunity or it's a metaphor for self-examination. For us to think about what kind of people we are. Um, if, you, if you turn to the front of your uh, bulletin, there are a couple of uh, reflection quotes. And um, uh, I don't know of any other scholar uh, 
who has said that James chapter 1 is his favorite chapter of the Bible. And verses 22 to 25 is his favorite two verses. So automatically, this philosopher is now my favorite because he likes James. I like James a lot too. Um, a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, uh, there's a quote from him on the front page. He was a Danish philosopher, existentialist. I don't, I don't uh, agree with everything he said, of course. Uh, but, but he, uh, thinking about this passage... Um, encouraged folks in, uh, uh, in Denmark in the 1800s to not just look at Scripture as if it was an object of analysis. Um, part of the quote is not in front of you. Let me read the first bit and then we'll get to the part that you're looking at. Uh, Kierkegaard is famous for having said this, When you read God's Word, you must so that you actually do come to see yourself in the mirror, you must remember to say to yourself incessantly, it is I to whom it is speaking. It is I about whom it is speaking. Now what's in the front of your bulletin? It continues. If God's word is for you merely a doctrine, something impersonal and objective, then it is no mirror. An objective doctrine cannot be called a mirror. It is just as impossible to look at yourself in an objective doctrine as to look at yourself in a wall. And if you want to relate impersonally, objectively to God, God's Word, there can be no question of looking at yourself in the mirror because it takes a personality, an I, to look at oneself in the mirror. A wall can be seen in a mirror, but a wall cannot see itself or look at itself in a mirror. No, while reading God's Word, you must incessantly say to yourself, it is I to whom it is speaking. It is I about whom it is speaking. Do you hear the worry there? I think Kierkegaard has understood James well. The worry is, is that there can be a great familiarity with God, a great familiarity with what He has said in His Word, but still someone keeps God at arm's length. Uh, the illustration that comes to my mind is something like becoming mirror experts. Um, we, we could uh, look at a mirror and become an expert in the type of glass that is used. Or we can become well-versed in knowing what kind of wood frames the glass. Or we can become like an interior decorator and know exactly where on the wall the mirror needs to be positioned. But if you never look at yourself in the mirror, we're not using the mirror for what it was designed to do. I wonder if the analogy is something similar to a Christian. That we would hear God's Word often. We would even know things about it. We would become studious, right? We would learn some theology. All the while, using our knowledge about Scripture, using our knowledge about God, to keep God at arm's length. Or maybe even to manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do. The point is this, becoming a mirror expert does not help us see our own reflection in the mirror. Becoming an expert in Scripture does not guarantee that we are transformed by the power of God. Now, let me time out for a second and say, we really should read the Bible. <laughs> uh, studying Scripture is an important thing. And in fact, in many of our lives, we, we don't have enough of Scripture pulsating through our, our minds. However, just reading the Bible doesn't fix us, is, is the point. Uh, knowing more about Scripture or about God isn't the fix. It's allowing God to transform us uh, that does fix us. So here, the mere hearer, the one who hears and doesn't do, is self-deceived. 
so what about the other side of the contrast? What about the hearing doer? Look back at verse 22, the very first phrase. Here is the only command uh, in the whole section. Verse 22, the first few words uh, say this. But be doers of the word not hearers only. Be doers. That's the only command. But be a doer of the word. And, and notice uh, the order there. What are you supposed to... Uh, what comes first? Be. Be something. Uh, so that doing comes next. Be doers of the word. Uh, I want to come back to that idea. How do we be doers? How do we be that kind of person? I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Uh, but the opening command is to be doers of the word. Look at verse 25. Here is uh, the other side of the contrast. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here are some characteristics of, the, of the, the doer, the one who hears and does. First, the hearing doer is not self-deceived. They have accurate knowledge of God and accurate knowledge of themselves. They look in the mirror and see themselves accurately for who they are. They see themselves as desperately needed, needy, sorry, desperately needy and utterly broken without God. This person who looks has a true estimation of himself in light of God's Word. Second, the hearing doer looks intently. Look at verse 25. Uh, but the one who looks into the law of liberty uh, and perseveres, that's what the ESV says, perseveres in looking. Uh, the, the word here literally means to walk up to something, stoop over, and to examine it. Um, so it's stressing the idea of lingering, of, of not just glancing at something and forgetting, but having uh, a sustained gaze at something. It, it, it's kind of like making tea. The longer the tea bag is in the hot water, the stronger the tea. Right? The longer the look, the more absorption of the law of liberty, of the Word of God, happens. As we gaze into the perfect law of God, we are breaking up the fallow ground of selective spiritual hearing, and therefore of inaction. So the, the hearing doer looks intently. And, and, and this intent looking turns into lingering, which turns into frequently, frequenting, which turns into abiding, right? Having God's Word permeate our mind so that our thoughts are His thoughts. So first, the hearing doer is not self-deceived. Second, the hearing doer looks intently. Third, the hearing doer, because they're looking intently, the Word begins to transform that hearing doer. Uh, that person's actions begin to change. Not because they are self-willed, I'm going to do it, I'm going to change. No, but because as they soak in God's Word, that begins to transform them. A confessional trust, I confess, I trust in God, becomes a functional trust. I really am trusting in this hard moment. I'm really trusting in this, in this season of, of, of difficulty. Uh, confessional trust becomes, uh, becomes functional trust as intent looking happens, as we gaze into the Word of God. And finally, the hearing doer is blessed in what he's doing. At the very end of verse 25, James says that this person is blessed in what they do. God fills this person with joy and strength. Now, now blessedness is not maybe being happy, Right? You might be doing God's will and strengthened, and you might be a doer. 
Uh, and that might not mean you're happy. Um, I see some of you shaking your head. Following Jesus isn't a guarantee that life is going to be rosy and that things are always going to come out your way. But there is a deep blessedness. There is a deep sense of God's presence in our lives. Um, I think I've used this illustration before, but um, in 1995, my father passed away from cancer, nine months uh, suffering from lung cancer, and he passed away in one of the rooms in my family home, and my wife and my sister and my mom, we were all present. And I remember this moment of watching him pass, and it was just utterly sad. A lot of brokenness in my family, especially with regard to my father. But I remember writing in my journal, God, I am heartbroken. I will never see my father again. But I am aware of a strange and abiding joy in this moment. Because you are near. That's blessedness. Not because I got what I want, but because God is present. He is powerfully near me. And He is, by His Word and by His Spirit, transforming me to endure even this moment. So those are the characteristics of the one who hears and does. They're not self-deceived. They look intently in the law of God. They're transformed by that law. And in the end, they're blessed. They're blessed in this doing. Now that's the contrast. Very clear sermon, right? Don't be a mere hearer. Be a doer. So we've got that clear. But I don't want us to end there. Because that would be uh, the wrong idea. James is not just scolding you, saying, do this, don't do that. We've got to come back to this idea of the gift that transforms. The gift that transforms. Remember how verse 22 begins? Be a doer of the word. And I wanted to come back to this question. How do you become, how do you be that? How do you be before you do? All through the first chapter of James, James has been concerned with the kind of transformation that results from being made whole. From being made perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Verse 4. From being born anew by the word of truth. Verse 18. By receiving the implanted word. Verse 21. The kind of wholeness that's on display in James chapter 1 is a kind of wholeness that comes from something God does for us. The being is logically prior to the doing. Let me read two verses, verse 18 and verse 21. Both of these in James chapter 1. Verse 18 says, uh, By His own will, He brought us forth, or gave us birth, by the word of truth. Verse 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of truth, the implanted word, rescues us and transforms us. The transformation in our lives doesn't come about because we do something first. It's because we receive something first. And it's the Word of God, the implanted Word, the Word that saves us, the Word that God has used to make us alive again. Transformation comes after this discovery, after waking up from a drowsy slumber of inattentive self-deception. When we look into the mirror of God's Word, we see ourselves for who we are. We're broken. We can't do it ourselves. Even the most self-righteous of us in the room, right? But uh, we might congratulate ourselves on, hey, I'm doing it right. 
I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm coming to church, even when others aren't. Right? Even that self-righteousness comes to an end. I, I can't do it myself. God's Word, as I look into it, begins to show me that even that kind of, kind of self-righteousness doesn't save me. It doesn't transform me. James is trying to get at this, is that the gift that is given transforms us. But this gift is also a responsibility. We must respond to this gift. We receive it. It transforms us. But as we respond to it, we respond in obedience. We respond in a transformed life. God's gracious gift of rescue transforms us, and we must then act along with that transformation and begin to walk in a way that God has called us to. I'll, I'll end with this idea. The, the responsibility of hearing and obeying doesn't crush us. It doesn't overwhelm us. Because it's first a gift. Jesus is the great doer of God's will. Jesus is the, the greatest doer. And it's His gift to us that allows us to reciprocate and to obey. I want you to, I want you to think about your life as if your life is a story or a novel. We all try to write out our own story. We try to navigate the plot lines so that we have some kind of success. We minimize our failures often. That's self-deception. Um, but when we come face to face with the message of the gospel, we, we find out that our story is about much more than just ourselves. That the novel our lives are a part of uh, it is actually part of a bigger story. Our lives are not our own. Our lives are set within this new, larger story uh, that is God's actual story. The novel of your life is no longer dominated by or defined by the chapter where you walked out on your parents or where you slept with the wrong person or you failed out of school or lost your job or hurt your friends or stopped believing in God. No, there is a new climactic chapter in our life. As, as, we, as we become a Christian, as we understand what God has done, we see our lives and our story put into God's larger story. Now the climactic story, or the climactic chapter in the story, is the chapter where Jesus Christ was crucified for us and gave himself for us. That's the defining moment of our narrative now. That gift now transforms the plot line. And the point is, is... How will our stories now be different? Because there is a new climax, a new denouement, a new moment of transition, and it's the moment of Christ in our lives. Now, now we're confident we know from Scripture how this story ends. It ends in new creation. It ends in God making all things new. But the, the point that James brings us to, I think, is this. This part of the story, knowing God's transformational power in our lives, knowing where it all ends, how is this part of our story now different? Because of, in the power of, what God has done for us. This is how James then can talk to Christians and say, we must be doers of the word, not mere hearers who deceive themselves. So let's trust in this gift that has been given and allow it constantly to transform us to be doers of the word. Let's pray. Father, help us. Lord, these weak words of mine, I pray that you would fill with your power that your word that we have thought about this morning would be a powerful, transformative word in our lives. Help us, Lord, to look intently 
into the word of truth. Lord, would we be transformed by your power that we might be doers, not just hearers. Save us, Lord, from self-deception. And help us, Lord, to receive this gift gratefully and to be transformed by it. Lord, do this in your church for the sake of your kingdom and for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.